0: Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be.
1: Man, I like loved your presentation.
0: Oh, thank you. It was so I good. Love yours. I was
1: like vibing. I was like vibing big time with it.
0: Well, and and you guys were really, it was good to have you there because you know, we are so in sync on so yeah. much of this culture stuff. And then, of course, when Mentimeter decided not to, you know, give me the results on my slide, it was great to have Geo there to. Oh me. yeah, that's right. But I, I had the, um, I don't know if she's Shuba sent it out yet, but I took all of the the results from the mentees and I dropped them into the slide deck so that when she sends it out, people will see them. Oh, perfect. The the one that I think, and I, you know, every time I do this. Um, and, and then I, I send it out. I, I tell people the word cloud about how do you want people to feel? Yeah. (laughs) You're being intentional about creating this culture. Are you thinking about how you want people to feel? And, you know, remember you gave three words. Yeah. And so I said to her, you know, people can print that out and stick it on the wall in front of you. So that every once in a while you remember, this is about making people feel a certain way. Yeah. That's that's what it is at its core.
1: Well, you know, I kind of tell people, um, uh, at least on my sales team, and anytime we do one of those like ROI sessions, yeah, like you have to start with that feeling. You have to start with how do I want people to feel at the end of this conversation, or how do I want them to feel at the end of right. this pitch. Or even when you're delivering information, what any kind of information, right? How do I want somebody to feel is such a critical piece of the puzzle, right? Because, um, because it is because we're emotional beings because it's like what drives everything, you know?
0: Right. And and in this work, I mean, well, and I think we both kind of said this. The the culture has to support what we're doing.
1: Hundred percent.
0: Right, or what we're doing can't really can't really be totally effective. And talking about um, how we want people to feel, I mean, that psychological safety is all about that, right? Okay. So first, we have to make sure as the compliance and ethics professionals, we're clear on how we want people to feel. But then we have to help managers, leaders, managers, um, do that too. And at the core of it is, a sense of whether people are emotionally literate enough to do that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah,
0: right. And that was that you know the Brene Brown quote that um, that I paraphrased was, and I I don't even remember whether this is her research or somebody else's that adults on average in this country can only identify three emotions: happy, yeah. sad, angry. I mean, that's that's like stunning.
1: Isn't that wild?
0: Yeah. And and if you can't name it, if you can't describe it, then you can't deal with it.
1: Yeah, so, that was okay. the interesting thing about that book. I think she did a really interesting job of like, yeah, I got it in my office too. Like, uh, she does such an interesting job of like kind of teasing out. I mean, there's something to the fact that people can only name three. The, yeah. uh, like, are those like the base emotions? Is it like every prime, You know, every color boils down to those three primary colors or every... Every you know color we see is some mix of those primary colors. I don't mm-hmm. know. I think it's kind of interesting. Is it just a? Um, is it just an inability to like communicate appropriately? Is it sort of like a dumb? You know, is it look sort of like childish? Like we don't it have the words. Childish. Childish. It kind of is.
0: Yeah. Um, think about but, cartoons, right? Like, how many faces do cartoon characters make? Right. And I mean, well, I'm a lot older than you, but they didn't make a lot of different faces before, you know claymation and um yeah right you know everything that came after that right but this is a really important part of being effective in our work um you know whether you're talking about creating a speaking up culture or you're doing investigations understanding emotions understanding um you know why people are behaving the way they are is about that that flywheel that I use, right, that, you know, their decisions are shaped by their perceptions. And so their perceptions are grounded in, among other things, what they're feeling.
1: Yeah. And also, you know, what's interesting is so much of those perceptions, you know, the way I was thinking about that flywheel was that those perceptions are kind of the stories we end up telling ourselves. And those are going to be I mean, to some degree, anything you see goes through your mind and ends up, you know, you end up telling yourself a story based on what you've seen. Right. So if you're seeing a bunch of bad behaviors, well, those perceptions are going through that sort of translation process as you digest that into your own sort of experience. And that kicks off so much. And, you know, um, I was talking to somebody else about this yesterday. uh, And again, this morning, actually, that like, we are what we fixate on. And so if, you know, you know how, I mean, this is like an old thing, but like, if you get a blue car, you're like, well, everybody's got a blue car. Yes, if you see right. like, like some unfairness, you know, back to that, that, that unfairness thing that Ellen was talking about, if you see unfairness and you start fixating on that, that's all you're ever going to see. And yes. then, you know, it's like chewing on that little sore in your mouth that, you know, yes. will never go away. Cause that's yes. all you're like fixating on. It's right. wild.
0: That's right. Yeah. Mindset, our, our mindset drives so much of what we decide what we do. How we react,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: this is why i I really think um a, a mindfulness practice has really helped me in really? this you know l- later chapter of my life.
1: And what does that look like, that mindfulness practice?
0: Well, it really started well, we'll go we can talk about that some other time, but now it starts with minimum ten minutes quiet time. Mm. And first thing in the morning, because what happens first thing in the morning sets the tone for the rest of the day, at least. That's true.
1: I think it's probably for everybody, to be honest.
0: Maybe so. And, um, and now, you know, that can be in the beginning, it was just focusing on breathing and learning that it was okay when, you know, my, the racing thoughts kept knocking me off of counting the breaths and focusing on just you know just being just not worrying about what's happening in an hour or tomorrow or next week or the kids birthday party or the doctor's appointment or oops where did i go
1: mm-hmm. come back
0: here and um and being present being just in the moment and the the reason i'm saying this is because it trains us to bring our mind back to what am i feeling what am i going to do about it and so we can learn to respond instead of react. And I, I think when we're in that kind of fast paced, I'm in my routine, I have so many things on my to-do list, we don't necessarily give ourso- ourselves time to respond, not react. Right. And, and that's all about emotional um, regulation, Mm-hmm. Too, you know, when somebody pisses us off, uh, makes us angry. Um, why are we angry? That that few seconds might be the difference between, you know, a a tone of voice that matches theirs, mm-hmm. or a tone of voice that's appropriate for the response, and can set off a fight, or can give somebody pause to to maybe even mirror wait, maybe, maybe there's some space here to work something out.
1: Yeah. And I think that pause allows for a little bit of like time or whatever to like check yourself because I mean, how many times, like, I mean, there's so many times where like, I use a tone that I'm not like trying to use. And then like, and then somebody responds back to me and I'm just like, what are you talking to me like that for? And they're like, well, you just started talking to me that way, you know?
0: Yeah. Right. Well, and also I'm, I'm, half Italian <laughs> and like, uh, I know who I'm talking to. So there's a certain, um, let's say passion totally bring to every Well, and, and everything.
1: Um, yeah. So every single everything. thing. Yeah. Right. And so when mean, talk, people walk important. by me, me and my brother's office sometimes, uh, and we're just talking and they're like, is everything all right? And we're like, yeah, exactly. everything's fine. Everything's great. Exactly. As a matter of fact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we exactly. just talk that way. You know what I mean? That's right.
0: And that's what, well, and this was something we were talking about, um, I guess it was Tuesday when Brad Shermer was talking about how people talk to each other or relate mm-hmm. to each other or learn from each other in the workplace. Um, I think the way we're raised obviously has a lot to do with the tone of voice we use with totally. other people, right? But I think more importantly, you know, how our parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, uh-huh talk to us and each other teaches us from very early on what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Um, and having that, as we were talking that day, that, that, you know, intergenerational experience growing Mm -hmm. up. Um, yeah, it's okay to raise my voice with my father. You know, if he's saying something I disagree with and he's not listening to me and I've tried, I know that he talks loud. I'm going to talk loud. And but it's also okay for me to push back on him because that's the way I was raised. Right. And, and not everybody was raised that way.
1: Yeah. Not everybody under like not everybody was raised with like healthy boundaries uh, right. in those relationships. And that can right. be a really big deal for folks. Right.
0: Or, or even two way conversation when it comes to parent child or, you know, grandparent child. Right. So, and then, you know, in the workplace when we have multiple generations talking to each other, then everybody's perceptions about what's appropriate are right there on display.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like multi-generational, multi-cultural. I mean, there's just so many differences um, that are very interesting and can have like these sort of cascading effects, you know?
0: right? But that's why understanding emotions um, and being able to articulate what we're feeling is sort of the first step in creating kind of environment where people will speak up when something's wrong you know and that's about emotional literacy is is kind of what what we call it right we have we have this um we have this this uh it's called the emotional culture deck oh cool um this was uh designed by um somebody in in uh, new zealand The, the company's called riders and elephants if you know that old you know you steer the rider move the elephant thing um but this is what's cool about it so there are black cards that have feelings that are like feelings we want people to feel right so understanding at ease easy going involved her right so these are feelings we want to encourage and then the white cards which i dropped on the floor um are feelings like here's one Feelings we would rather not have people feel. Yeah. Right? Incapable. Um, anxious. Blah. Right. I love that 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 the black card white card thing is sort of the opposite of you know the the black hat is the bad guy the white hat is the good guy right right so so what we do is the the word cloud exercise that we did the other day when I asked people how do you want people to feel if the the culture work that you're doing is you know achieving the goal you're you're creating that speaking up environment or that safe environment you know how do you want people to feel and those feelings words are the ones hopefully that that are on these black cards so when you do that in person with with a team then people start to see oh yeah these are these are the things we want people to feel and there are like a lot of them right. and then what's getting in the way of that what do we have to overcome Why don't people feel that way?
1: Yeah. Or why are they feeling blocked or anxious or whatever?
0: Right. And what's in so, and then, then what's it, what's in my power to change so that they don't feel that way? Or what's in their, you know, maybe me, the chief compliance officer, I have no power for some of these things. But what can I do with managers to help them see what people are feeling in their teams? Because you you got to start there. You know, people aren't going to speak up if the the most basic feeling of belonging and inclusion isn't there, right? We're not yeah, going to get right. them all the way to challenging wrongdoing if they don't even feel safe to talk about what they're feeling, and and that's what's I think been a big problem with getting people to come back to the office. Oh, and, you think so? Oh yeah. You know, uh, people are uncomfortable saying. You know, things changed in the last couple of years. You know, I now have an elderly parent or I have a sick child or I don't have the childcare arrangements I used to have. Or or I think my life has more equilibrium or balance if you prefer. Um, And I don't think I want to be back in the office five days a week. So, you know, being able to talk about that, making it okay to say, here's what I need you know, what's going on for me is this. And here's what I need from you. um, Takes a lot of the stress out of coming back to the office. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. he's into it. Maybe, oh, oh, you can't be here before 830 because now you have to drop kids off at school. Okay.
1: Right. Get some flexibility there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. But that, that requires being able to talk about what we're feeling. And that's like the icky stuff that, people aren't used to doing in at work, I guess.
1: Let me ask you this question that I almost asked you during your presentation, but I said, I don't want to rabbit hole us. I thought I'll save it for four oh, today. Okay. So um, something I kind of struggle with is this, what can kind of seem like a contradiction between like psychological safety, which I obviously feel is super important. And on the other side of it, um, like high performance, which is also very important. So let me kind of back up a little. In my family, growing up, I felt super safe. We had a very strong sort of family culture. I loved my parents. I loved the holidays. I had so much fun, you know, around them. I wasn't, you know, I remember when we moved to the town that we landed in for where I went to high school, I, that's where I was first kind of exposed to like people hating the holidays and hating being around their parents. And I was just like, that's bizarre because I had a great, great relationship with them. But at the same time, like we were a high performance family. Like we had to get A's, we had to do well in school. That was well expected of us. And my parents did a really nice job of, I think, and I I don't even think I'm doing that good of a job of that, of balancing that with, you know, my kids, um, or I, they just did a great job with it across all of us, I think. Um, of balancing that, like safety, definitely felt safe, definitely wanted to be there, but they could hold also at the same time the importance of like being high performance. So I think many times when I talk about psychological safety, um, the reaction I get from other people is that they're like, well, what about performance? And frankly, um, when there have been people that have come into our company who are like vibing with the company and vibing with the culture and all that stuff that I talk about for culture, I absolutely mean, and we try to create, I want people to feel safe here. I want them to bring their whole selves to work. I want them to feel like they can put their unique God given gifts, uh, you know, let those bloom and blossom in pursuit of our mission. But at the same time, like this is going to be a high performance company. I'm going to have high performance teams. And in order for that to occur, there have to be sort of like lines of like, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So how do we t- think of that sweet and sour, or that sort of black and white or whatever? Like, how do we balance those things and communicate it in a clear way? Because sometimes I let somebody go and then they're like, well, when I was just like, well, like, you're not, doesn't seem like you're working hard or it doesn't seem like this is a good fit or whatever. And I, I never want to blind sign somebody. And I definitely don't want to paint a picture that's not accurate, but how do you balance those things? Or how have you seen this struggle like, be played out well, you know.
0: Yeah, I I think um, well, not blindsiding somebody is the the starting point, right? So I assume that because you know how important psychological safety is, you're already having conversations with people about what has to change, and in before you let them go, but it right. Yeah. Okay. Well,
1: so, yeah, of course, of okay. course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: but in that conversation, if they have the space to say, well, well, here's the part I don't understand, or here's what I need, here's the support I need to be able to achieve those high performance expectations, then that's a that's a two-way communication. Mm-hmm. You come out of that two-way communication with, here's what's going to change. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And then if it doesn't happen, there's no blindsiding.
1: Right? Yeah, totally.
0: So, and, and I think that goes for everything we do in compliance and ethics to try to get people to color inside the lines, right? We, we explain why, why coloring inside the lines is important. Here's where you aren't coloring inside the lines. Was there something you didn't understand? Please call us or reach out or ask for help or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you have a pattern of behavior where somebody just isn't doing what they're supposed to do, living the values or meeting the policies or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, then there's something else going on. They're, you know, they're disengaged from the idea of the, the, you know, kind of the social contract that we have around here, which is we're all going to behave in accordance with the code, the values, the policies, we gave you a chance, what's the problem?
1: Yeah, and I guess not every shoe is for every foot and every foot's for every shoe, you know, so. Right,
0: that's um, right, that's right. But the other thing I I wanted to say about high performance and psychological safety is they're, I mean, you described it, they're not mutually exclusive, right? right? That's how you were raised, that's how I was raised. But um, because when I was uh, in high school, my mother became a psychologist there was a little bit of nuance that got added to that and it was high performance can be different for each of the, we're four children. Yeah. I'm, I'm the oldest. We, you and I already.
1: Yeah. I tie on that one. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so high performance, you know, how I get to those goals and objectives might be different from how one of my sisters or my brother does. Right. And, you know, if you're bringing your whole self, if you're doing your best, if you're asking for help when you don't know what to do, then, okay, that's high performance. Maybe we need to rethink the goals and objectives or the timeline. But if it's something that's not movable, if you're missing deadlines, then we have to back up and figure out why. Right. Is it that you don't have the support that you need or is it that you're really not bringing your whole self? you're not engaged. Gotcha. But there's the the psychological safety piece is you have to talk about it. And, you know, we, the manager have to create that space. We have to engage. And the person who's got the issues has to be part of that conversation if they want to stick
1: around. Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, um, It does allow for that sort of contract, so to speak. Um, And especially when you're prioritizing, you know, the support piece, which is kind of part and parcel with the psychological safety, if it's sort of authentic, um, that allows for A, some time, B, some some correction, C, some actual like transparency and candor so that this issue is raised to the surface and sort of a new opportunity for that upfront contract to be created to say, okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. And there should be some sort of objective measures as to like whether each of sides of those contracts are being performed to right. some like level that's uh you know appropriate or acceptable or whatever.
0: Right. Because you also, you know, people see what you're doing. So yeah, right. You can't, I mean, unless someone needs an accommodation for you know specific reasons, if it feels like everyone else has to carry so much more because that person's not really doing their job you know, that creates, that's not fair as well. Right. Exactly. Then you have problems in the wake of what you just agreed to with this one person. But I think that that part of the communication can also be, you know, especially if a person's just not engaged, um, part of the communication can be, do you understand how important what you're doing is Yeah. Right. context of our whole mission here? because that, uh, you know, I feel looking back at my corporate jobs, that was often, you know, lacking with people I worked for. Um, and that mm, might've been because- That connection to the mission. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're in the law department or the compliance office, you're still part of some some mission. Totally. Right? And we, we talked about this in the yeah, yeah. You have to connect everything we do to the mission of the organization as a whole. So sometimes what can happen on a project especially a big project where there's a team of people working on something and you know the person who's just collecting the data or cranking the spreadsheets or whatever maybe they don't understand how they fit into the bigger thing the bigger project and you know I've worked for people over the years in corporate land where the you know sort of need to know thing yeah was, oh well, they don't need to know. well, yeah, actually they do. Right. So unless there's a a confidentiality issue or you know there's some sort of you know, very proprietary thing that we're working on, and they can only know something which is I think kind of rare. Um, then the information flow is really about power, and it's not really about information flow.
1: Yeah, it's either power or it's about, um, like, selfishness. I don't want to have to get in the mud and have to deal with all of those attitudes and conversations and all of that stuff. So, And
0: they should just do what I tell them to do because I'm the boss.
1: That's right. And tell me, tell us that story about, like, so let me back up. We have kind of a policy here that a lot of people think we're crazy for. Like, if somebody gets let go for whatever reason... I'm very transparent about it. I'm never like trying to run anybody's name into the ground, for sure. But I think a culture, the barriers, the 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 lines around a culture, are going to be defined by what you accept and what you reject, and what you celebrate, and uh, you know, what you don't tolerate, right? And um, I think to the extent that your values are truly guiding your path up whatever mountain, you know, mission mountain you are climbing. Those are all opportunities to promote people based on values, and if somebody lets go, gets let let go because of values, those are opportunities to like reinforce that, like, hey, these guideposts were actually following them, right? But there were times where we would have these kinds of conversations, and people were like very uncomfortable with it. And it's like, you know, for me, I've just always thought like people are going to talk about whatever, whatever's happening is happening. Uh, everyone's going to be talking about it uh, regardless, and this is not like a um, this is not like a well, let's get out ahead of this thing type of a thing. It's more right. of a like, well, what's the truth of it? What's the what's the elephant in the room? Let's put that thing on the table and let's eat it together because right. we all have this kind of negativity bias. And right. I love that story that you told me uh at dinner about, you know, you you asked a really powerful question to a room and it really reframed the like the libel risk or like the the like defamation risk that you know everybody is sort of so oh. concerned about. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, you know, for several decades now, um, we've all been told, oh, you you can't really tell stories about things that happened and, you know, we'll get sued. The story, is this the one you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll get sued for libel or slander if we talk about, you know, some incident that happened. And, you know, my feeling, frankly, is if we don't learn from the past, we're doomed to repeat it right? So of course you, you know, whitewash the locations and the names of the people and all of that. But here's what happened. We got to the, you know, the root cause of it. Here's how we're going to fix it going forward. That's, that's a really important part of closing the loop on Mm -hmm. prevent, detect, correct, right? That's, That's the prevent part. So I was at well, I can't remember who's which conference it was. It was either SECe or what ECOA, you know, pre ECI mm-hmm. or the Association of Corporate Counsel, because this was like a long time ago, maybe more than ten years ago, and um, and I got asked that question. You know, it, you know, what's your policy, or how do you go about sharing lessons learned when compliance failures have happened or ethical issues have happened? And I said, "Well, I think it's really important to do what I just described, right? Whitewash it. First, you talk to the senior leaders about what happened. I mean, they may know. I mean, if they've if they're getting your reports, then they also know names, right? But here's the message. Here's the way we need to cascade this through your team. yeah, so that people learn from this, and we don't have a recurrence somewhere else in the company, right. So then I got pushed back. Oh, I was probably at ACC now that I think about it, because this would have been a lawyer. Segment. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Well, we can, you know, we could get sued for libel or slander if, you know, we talk about something that happened. And, and so I said, you know, I've been hearing this for a long time since I was a baby lawyer and, uh, and I heard this. And so we weren't doing this in way back when time. Um, show of hands. Have any of your companies ever been sued
1: for For this thing, for this this kind of thing,
0: for like using stories as lessons learned, could have heard a pin drop. Right. right? And, and, oh, and then similarly, um, um, another lawyer question, um, all risk assessments should be done under attorney client privilege, because if you find something, then you'll get in trouble if you don't fix it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. If you find something and it's in your risk assessment and you don't fix it, there, there are multiple reasons for fixing it. Getting in trouble potentially might be one of them, but I would much rather do my risk assessment or audit or whatever it is and until I find something that truly is potentially a legal problem and, and get the, and remember I'm a, you know, lo- recovered recovering lawyer. So in, in some of the roles that I've had, I'm wearing two hats, which is never good. But when I was just chief at, at you know, chief head of ethics and compliance, right. Um, not always chief. Um, bringing a lawyer in at certain times is important. Yeah. But I think that the regulators out there want to know we're doing risk assessments and we're doing them in a rigorous way. Yeah. And that we're fixing what we find.
1: Yeah. Like, what and- are you solving for? You're solving for to like not get in trouble. You're solving to do the right thing. Like exactly. when is the, when is the law the standard for like the right thing? It's really like, that's the line in the sand of like, what's the wrong thing. Exactly. There's a bunch of gray in the between is my point. Uh, totally.
0: And I, I really think you're, you're more likely to, to keep people um from addressing problems um if you if you take that that path of everything has to be under attorney-client privilege we want people talking about risk and what's going on out there and fixing what we find so my advice is don't do the risk assessment if you're not ready to fix what you're finding but you you certainly can talk to regulators, you know, if if you're in some sort of enforcement action, you can show a regulator what you found and how you fixed it. And that can actually be a good thing, right? We have a management system that's doing its job, right? Nothing's perfect, but our system has a way of picking things up and addressing them, getting to the root cause, fixing them, preventing them. I think regulators want to know that.
1: Yeah, I think they want to know that and I think you have some direct experience in that thing. I'd love to hear a little bit of that story on how you were able to really ne- do a bunch of negotiation with these governing bodies to get some amnesty to hey, let's yeah. let's uh let's clean out the basement, you know what I'm saying? Let's clean out the garage and yeah. let's you know, let's let's really fix this stuff because I just think, you know, uh we just kind of jumped into this thing which I love. Uh, but like you have such a cool story cause you've been at a cutting edge of this thing since like before compliance was even a thing. And not only have you like, you know, been part of that, like swell of ethics and compliance across our economy, but you've really kind of ridden the wave on many times the cutting edge of it. And I think, you know, diving into a little bit of your story has, you know, was really inspiring for me. And I think our listeners thank would you. love it as well.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Um, okay. So I started my professional life as a civil and environmental engineer and worked for a few years before going to law school. But it was obvious I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. So I graduate, I practice in law firm land for about five years, and then had my twins, my second and third children, and just really needed a life. And back then, 1992, um, going in-house meant getting a life. And lucky for me, Um, AT&T hired me because they needed an environmental lawyer in-house and um, they had just had their first ever criminal conviction. And um, it was my job to take the federal sentencing guidelines requirements for a compliance program and show that we met it because we were on the blacklist for this tiny little criminal problem. And it truly was tiny and I won't go into that now, but you know that story, right? It was yeah. so minor. Right. But this is a self-policing regulatory area. We have to self-police. We made a mistake. And so we now have to get off the blacklist. Yeah. Um, the debarment list, excuse me. And um, so as as part of that process, taking, you know, binders, because this is, you know, practically before the internet, um, pulling things together and making a program to show EPA and, and the, the DEP in that state was one thing, but then bringing it to life going forward in a systematic way, we made a management system, a compliance management system that was just before ISO 14001 came into, into being for environmental stuff. But um, what what I did was ask if we could take advantage of a program that EPA had designed. This was under the Clinton-Gore administration. Mm -hmm. Um, How about if we create in in this project, we create an opportunity for us to show the government Mm -hmm. how this kind of a, a management system approach to compliance can work and can work better than just managing to the laws and regulations. And, you know, setting goals and objectives that meet our principles and what we know is possible.
1: Which are presumably above, like Which beyond, whatever beyond. that sort of bare minimum. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because, you know, in fairness, a lot of times legislation and, and regulation right. are written by people who maybe have never been in a manufacturing plant. And so they're getting their information from lobbyists or scientists or whatever. But what's possible is something we can show them. Right. So Right. Course, I had a fair amount of resistance from within the law department, but I was very lucky to have a champion in the business unit president who agreed to this. So we were basically going to fling open the doors and the chain link fences and bring the regulators in to have this conversation about what's going on. You know, how do you manage in a management system proactive approach? Um, and oh, by the way, We'll bring in the community too. So, because I really think you have to establish those relationships before something bad happens. You know, if, you ha- if you're if you a trusted neighbor in a, a town where, you know, most of your employees live anyway, then investing in relationships with local, you know, communities, really? b- regulators, whatever, right? So, so okay, we're all going to be around the table. And I'm making this sound like, sure, everybody went along, along with it. I, I had plant managers who probably wanted to, you know, Burn me an effigy, but once we all got around the table, oh, now what are we going to do? Well, we're going to be showing the government what we're doing, which actually means they're going to see us find things, and we're going to be doing this in ten plants around the world for this. This was the semiconductor business uh, at the time, Um, and so we were engaging regulators in other countries as well as here. But we were we were in three different EPA regions because of where the U.S. plants were for this business unit. And some of these plants were like, you know, ancient because, totally. you know, Bell Laboratories goes back to, you know, forever.
1: Right. So
0: we knew we were going to find things, but that's okay because, as I said before, we're committed to fixing what we find. And that's what I had from the, the business unit president, Kirk Crawford, who to this day is someone... I admire and respect and was very fortunate to have as a champion. So um, the tricky part was, hmm, well, can I negotiate with the state and federal, we'll just talk about the US, state and federal agencies to have their people around the table, you know, looking at all of this, seeing us finding things and how we're fixing them. And not get smacked for what, for everything we're finding. Right. If we're fixing it. And so, you know, baby lawyer, 35 or whatever I was at the time, um, had to talk to EPA lawyers, state, you know, DEP lawyers, different regions, different departments. But somehow we got there and it was a great learning experience. I'm sure. One the... One of the well, you can I mean, it, within the law department, it it was sort of like, why aren't you just waiting for a plant to blow up? Like why are you, why are you doing this? Well, I'm doing this because the proactive work is so mm-hmm. much more fun than cleaning up problems, right? And understanding the way the business runs, and they were using a quality management system, understanding that. And integrating our policies and procedures and training and auditing. If if all of that is just part of the way they run the business, right, then they're much, much, much more likely to stay in compliance or even go well beyond compliance.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Ethics and compliance should not be the sidecar. It should be part of the car. You know what I'm right. saying? It's not this like bumper sticker on the on, on the thing. It is part of the thing, you know, exactly. and it's um exactly and integrating, you know, and also, you know, I was kind of struck by this, like we want our people within our organizations to self-report and we want them to report if they see something and we want to be transparent, to have this healthy culture. And yet we want to interact with these other bodies uh, in a sort of like absolutely opposite way, which is just very, very bizarre. And we wonder why our programs aren't bought into. Well, it's like, you're not being like internally consistent or you're not being, you know, you're not being consistent in the sense of like, you know the way you're acting internally and what you're demanding of these folks is different than the way you're acting externally to these you know bodies that are kind of serving in a kind of a relatively sort of similar position as you're serving internally. You know what I'm saying?
0: That's a very yes. That's a great analogy. Yes, and and you know I think um, some of what we had to to sort of get to the bottom of was that hey we all have the common ground of protecting the environment, right? Like I'm an environmental lawyer sitting at that table. So somebody else. And I did not become an environmental lawyer because I wanted to help companies pollute. Right? right. I could have done some, some other kind of law, but I chose environmental law for a reason. Right. And my colleagues who were environmental engineers didn't become environmental engineers because they wanted to help companies pollute. Right. So get to the common ground, which is well, and with the community, the common ground is my folks live here. Their right. kids play in the playground. That right, like so. So what we have,
1: yeah, yeah. These plants are not full, despite what regulators might think. These plants are not full of, uh, you know, guys twisting their mustaches, laughing nefariously, kicking over barrels right. into the lake. You know what I'm saying?
0: Exactly. And see, this goes to that that cycle. That I was talking about with how you change culture. Right. It's get at the perception so that, right, that perception of where the guys wearing the, you know, the black hat villain and yeah. they're the guys wearing the white hat hero. Yeah. And, and so is the community. And so breaking that down by, by building humanizing
1: it. Yeah. Exactly. Yes.
0: And, and earning trust. I mean, totally. the, the The only way I got to that privilege conversation was earning the trust between us and these regulators and their lawyers that we really meant business, that we really were going to fix what we found. And that, that project, it was called Project XL. And we were really so honored and fortunate. One of the, I guess there were six, maybe six companies, um, though, as, as with all things in life, when you have a champion and that champion moves on, then, um, what, What's left in his wake might not be a champion who wants to continue the, you know, Camelot Roundtable. Yeah, right. He had created. And that is, in fact, what happened. So the project, you know, we sort of gracefully bowed out of that um, a few years later. Um, he went and became the CEO of something else outside of the company. Um, but the management system continued. And to this day, as I, as I told you, I have used a management system approach with every regulatory risk area, every risk area, not even regulatory ones, because it's simple. You do a risk assessment, you say what you're gonna, you know, you prioritize what you're gonna do, you put it in place, plan, do, check, monitoring, helpline, audits, you know, it, it, people have to yeah. speak up if, if something's not working, right? But what you find, you fix plan yeah. each other um, So it has served me well all these years. That was 1995. And I'm still using it with clients now.
1: Well, it's a framework that is uh, simple, um, compelling, uh, portable, and repeatable. And you can take exactly. this sort of Pareto approach to it of kind of knocking out the, you know, the 20% of the things that are causing 80% of the problems. And then cool. Now I have a new set that I can reassess on and say, cool, there's, well, again, the Pareto principle is there again. You know, 80% of the problems are caused by this next 20%. You just keep focusing right. on those things. And it's how like everything happens. You know, if you've ever yeah. seen, uh, if you've ever seen like uh, a video of like a blacksmith uh, making a blade, you know, making a sword or something, like they they change the, you know, they change those files down to something finer and finer and finer oh, and right. finer, right? Like you keep yes. refining it and refining it and and, exactly. and things like, like that. So that exactly. principle applies to everything.
0: Exactly. You know, we're getting and close to nice, the, the portability, excuse me for interrupting yeah, you, yeah. The, the portability piece of it is that, you know, on the, on the non, you know, compliance office side of the conversation, right? When you're talking to people in the organization, regardless of the risk area, what we're bringing to them has the same look and feel. Exactly. Right. right? So exactly. that's also easier to integrate into the business, the way the business operates and the way the culture can embrace it, then you know a bunch of silos with different risk areas and is it coming from the law department or compliance or HR or finance, whatever. If we can all have this sort of simple management system approach, it, it's gonna be easier for the people who have to manage the risk.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like veggie bites there. They look like, uh, they're like things for kids. They're made of broccoli, but they look like chicken nuggets. You know what I'm saying? That's how you get them to eat the vegetables, it's all a chicken nugget. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your business. I got two, two last questions. We're getting to the end. Um, tell us a little bit about your business, the name of it, how people can find you. And then I always love this question. If you could go back in time and find a young Debbie, what advice do you wish you had earlier?
0: Okay, so, um, well, first I'll tell you about my business. Um, I started this consulting business in 2004 um, after a major burnout from a, a big multinational global compliance and ethics job that required me to live in London while my family was here And go back and forth every two weeks um i just needed a little time i wanted to get my head back on my shoulders thought i'd consult for a little while and then go get a chief compliance officer job in some other big multinational and um fortunately we have a very collegial community in Mm -hmm. this profession and so i just had to reach out to a couple of friends that i knew who were chief compliance officers Mm -hmm. and say I'm just for a couple of months, I just need some projects before I go back out and interview. And I loved it. And so that was, that was 2004. And I started it as compliance and ethics solutions. So doing basic stuff, risk assessments, investigations, writing policies, codes, doing training. I love to, I love standing up in front of a room and helping people take legalistic stuff and make it practical for what they do every day. I do love that. I still do that. Um, I, a, a few times in the intervening years, I or other folks in my, in my team um, took on long, big, long projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and I should tell you, the way I staffed this was you know, thinking as the client, you know, it'd be really great if I got other people who had had senior roles in companies doing compliance or legal stuff or audit or whatever, HR, and we can staff the projects and teach the in-house people how to pick up the management system or the risk right. assessment. And then bye-bye. Our role is obsolete, but you just had somebody who would- Yeah, I taught to you how fish. Of yeah, right, exactly. exactly. And also it's not headcount for you. Right. But I'm giving you somebody who's like VP level, right. right? So there were a few times when I, especially, took on longer term roles, mm. um, and a couple of times I I took on some of those wear two hats roles that I that I find challenging. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but you know, in small and mid sized companies, that's the reality, and so you just have to be honest with yourself about here's the legal advice but here's the, the integrity advice, which might mean we have to do something more mm. than what the law requires. And you lay it out that way for your CEO and your board, whatever. And so anyway, that, that's that piece. In about um, 2018, I, I realized that much of the work that we were doing was focused on ethical leadership and um, culture, really, and creating speaking up cultures. And so I changed the name of the company to Resility because I wanted to, I wanted to have a focus on resilience because that's really, you know, an an effective ethics and compliance program is about supporting the long-term resilience of the company, right? Totally. But it's also about, at least the culture piece of it, supporting the resilience of the individuals and the teams that make the, the donuts, Right.
1: Right.
0: So um, and I just I made up the name and the logo just because I I felt like resilience had to be at the center of it. And, you know, I I wanted a sort of a proactive word. And so I made it up. Um, What we do now is mostly focused on those two things. I still do um, compliance training, you know, the old fashioned kind, but with a creative twist. Yeah. So I really, really like using scenarios and role playing. Um, I have um, a, a couple of colleagues on the team who are also really into being creative and writing stories. So that's a that's a big piece of the sort of more traditional stuff. Cool. Um, but on the culture and leadership side, we're working with you know non ethics and compliance people people who are managing businesses mm-hmm. and sometimes we're helping the ethics and compliance office. Sometimes we're helping the HR people train managers to create that culture that, um, inspires not just speaking up, but, you know, psychological safety, as you, you know, I wrote an article on this with mm. my colleague, Maren Hube. um, innovation is also fueled by psychological safety. Right. And so, there's like a whole extra piece of work now right? outside of ethics and compliance, but kind of, you know, connected and adjacent. Because if you have engaged employees, however you get there, if they're engaged, they're much more likely to care about the long-term resilience of
1: the company. Yeah. And then you get those ideas that they, uh, you know, you get them to push down the gas pedal a little bit more, you get them to pick up that piece of trash in the hallway or whatever. And those are all just little pictures of this level of engagement that really helps us really achieve our missions in a, in a, in a better way. Right. Right. So what's that piece of advice before we go?
0: Calm down. Mm. (laughs) Like that, that need to be everything that everyone needs um and that's part of being a mommy too i guess but yeah um it's really okay and maybe not calm down but it's okay to not do everything um you know my mantra is do less finish more because Mm -hmm. if i take on too much and not i I know that i'm easily you know you know distracted by the next thing that sounds like oh that could be fun to do so It's really okay to love doing culture and leadership and to do less of the other things, to be really picky about the traditional, you know, investigations and uh, risk assessments so that I have more time to Mm -hmm. do the things that I really feel are my strengths. Right. And, you know, being driven by your strengths means everybody gets the best of you and you get to love what you do.
1: Right. Well, I uh, it's been so great getting to know you. It's been great uh, you coming on here. This is a lot of fun. Can't yeah. wait to see you in a couple of weeks at yeah. the conference. Too. Um, yeah, so uh, people can find you on LinkedIn. They can find you on your website. And, oh, which uh, is
0: Resility, R-E-S-I-L-I-T-I, Resility.com. Yeah. Um, but I'm all over LinkedIn, as you know. Yeah. So I, love, I love connecting that way and getting to learn about other people's work. So um, I, you know, I I look forward to staying in touch.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Ethics Experts. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks.